Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. People claim to be members of God's household, to be followers of his teaching, but in the Roman Empire, your master determines your household, and in the Bible, your fears reveal your true master. Insofar as our fears control us, the Mathean metaphor of the Roman household contextualizes this dynamic perfectly as a kind of slavery. If human beings are controlled by their fears, why not transfer this power to a master who truly cares for us? Not a Roman patrician, but a teacher, the one who gives us wisdom for the sake of the common good. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, verses 24 to 31. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 283 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Today we continue with the Gospel of Matthew. Richard, you and I were just chatting that it's too bad we used the title Fear in last week's episode because the theme of fear continues here in Matthew. Fear is so important because it's really who you respect. People say, oh, we shouldn't have to fear God. He loves us, all this kind of thing. What you fear is carried out in your actions. You follow your fear naturally. If you're afraid of your bank account being cleared out, then you go and you get a financial advisor and you get auto deposit for your paycheck. That's what you do when you fear losing all your money. When you fear God, you do everything that's set out in the commandments and you ask for forgiveness when you're unable to perform everything that's demanded of you and recognize the way that you fell short. I mean, it's very clear in the way that you carry out your actions. And this is what Jesus was trying to do in the Sermon on the Mount when he was going through what it meant to fear men versus fear God, because you're not allowed to care what people think. You're only allowed to care about what God teaches. This is the division because this distinction is what is manifested in your actions. This is the spirit that animates your body to do whatever you're doing. The fear and the spirit come together because that's what makes you do what you do and care about what you care about and protect what you want to protect. Most people fear things that they draw power from, whether it's status or wealth or security. We choose to fear the things that we think can save us from losing what we love the most. And the power of Scripture, as we explained last week, is that once you realize everything that you fear is dying, then the only thing left to fear is the wisdom of God, and this wisdom sets you free. But what's interesting here in verse 24 of Matthew 
it's not freedom per se, the way we talk about freedom in American ideology. It is freedom in the spirit of Exodus. You are trading one master for another master. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. There are two things happening here in verse 24. The first thing, as I said earlier, is that this freedom is not freedom per se. In other words, if you choose to fear this teaching, you are also choosing to fear those who bring the teaching to you. Ultimately, you are a disciple of the teaching, but someone is reading it to you. Someone is explaining it to you. And insofar as your fear is for the content of God's scroll, you suddenly show respect not for a king, not for a wealthy member of the nobility, but for a teacher. And this is something really beautiful in the New Testament that is antithetical to our culture. We are from a culture of people who complain about education and complain that teachers are too expensive and we don't make investments in the education of our children. We don't respect our teachers because our priorities are incorrect. We fear the power of death. We don't fear wisdom but it's the fear of wisdom that has the power to set us free through a new kind of slavery. And it's powerful, I say slavery, because here the words disciple and slave are presented in parallel, and the words teacher and master are presented in parallel. And I'm going to say again what I have said repeatedly, that English translations of the Bible cheat because the word dulos means slave, and they translate it as servant, they translate it as bondservant, they come up with all different types of translations, probably because of our own internal struggles culturally with slavery, which is something entirely different than what we're discussing in the New Testament. But when they try to dilute the word, we miss this connection. Because if everybody is enslaved by wisdom, then there's no more tyranny and there is no more slavery in human terms. Slavery is what's key. And for an American for whom freedom is everything, we do not allow ourselves to be bound. We do not allow ourselves to be bossed around. We will not be bound to anyone. We will move to the suburbs so we are not bound to a community. We will ignore our children so we are not bound by our children. We will divorce our spouses so we are not bound by our spouse. We will quit our job and go to another job because we are not bound by our job. We will fire an employee because we're not bound to offer them a living. We are not bound by anyone. We are not bound by any teaching. We will move from church to church, in and out of churches. We will move from one ideology to the next because we are not bound by anything. We will do anything to keep our own autonomy. In Exodus, this is how this plays out. The people, when they're under Pharaoh, they cry out to God to free them. And then when they leave Pharaoh, they cry out to God that they want to go back to Pharaoh because they don't want to be bound. Because then when they go out to the desert, they are given a law and they are to obey this law. So they went from Pharaoh's law to God's law at Sinai. Now, the law at Sinai was to treat each other well and to treat each other as a community and to be bound to one another. And this was not good enough for them. They wanted to go and find Baal, who allowed them to worship their own egos. 
Here, the disciple, the student, is not above his teacher, meaning you are bound by what the teacher tells you. Even if the teacher is wrong, if you put what the teacher said on the test, you get it right. If you put something besides what the teacher says, you're wrong. The teacher is right de facto. You are not above the teacher. And a slave is not above his master. And this is something that we can't even imagine because, as you said, Father, of our own neuroses around this. I mean, it's interesting that the ones who are the sons of the owners of the slaves were the ones who could not bear to put slave in and had to put servant instead because they could not imagine anyone as slaves. Why? Because they love African-Americans so much? No, because they hate the idea of themselves being slaves. Either African-Americans are slaves or no one is slaves. But me a slave? By no means, God forbid. But in fact, what Jesus is saying is you must be a slave. That's the only way you can be obedient to this teaching that Jesus has been teaching now for 10 chapters. You think that the king means what you think the king means. You think the kingdom is the kingdom that you imagine in your head. It's not. These are run and projected and constructed by God and this text. This is where you live, and this is what you must submit to. And by submitting to it, you set aside your will so that you can do what must be done, what must be done according to this text. And that is what you're bound by. So any listener who wants to figure out whether they agree with Matthew or not, you are not a citizen of the kingdom. You cannot be a citizen of the kingdom. Because a citizen of the kingdom hears the law and obeys it, period. If the police officer says, you went over the speed limit, you could say, well, I disagree with the speed limit. Okay, great. But if you're going to be a citizen of this country, here's your ticket. <laughs> I mean, what else are you going to do? People treat the police officer giving him a speeding ticket more seriously than God who says to love your neighbor and don't show off in front of other people. You must be a slave and a student, like you said, Father, in parallel. They're the same thing because you're bound to the one who commands you. A society that doesn't fear its teachers has a very short lifespan. If you live in a country where people don't respect teachers, they don't fear them. And by fear, I mean fear in the sense that when the teacher walks in the room, the kids sit up, they pay attention, that when the question of the teacher's well-being comes up, Everybody feels a sense of shame and a willingness to contribute more to support teachers. Our support of those who provide education in the most general sense is the lifeblood of our civilization. It's the key indicator in any society. If you are not investing in your teachers, there will be a consequence. And here in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is emphasizing this point, because when they face other powers and they are tempted to become afraid, they have to remember who it is that commanded them to go. A disciple is not above his teacher. Don't be afraid of the leaders of the synagogue or the leaders of the Roman Empire or anyone who would threaten you. Don't be afraid of hardship. Don't be afraid of hunger. Be afraid of the one who commanded you, your teacher, your master, who sent you out to do this work. 
it is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? If they are already trying to tear down Jesus and ridicule Jesus, you should expect the same. And ultimately, this is the power of calling a crucified king your Messiah. Because if they murdered your king, what are they going to do to you? It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. In other words, just as Jesus will be persecuted for the wisdom of his father, so too you should not only expect but should be satisfied with that outcome. You have to really examine whose household you're a member of. If you follow the rules of the ecodespotin, which is the master of the house, you're going to be like the master of the house. You're going to be a student of your teacher. What does that mean? You better choose well whose house you're in (laughs) and who your teacher is. And once you do, realize that they run the house. Don't say, I'll take a little bit of Beelzebul and I'll take a little bit of God. So that way I can still have my pretty house and also feel good about my eternal salvation. If you choose to be in the house and to follow the rules and be a citizen of the kingdom, then you follow the rules and you'll end up like Jesus. And what does Jesus end up as on the good side? One who is completely faithful to the will of his father. On the bad side, one who suffers at the hands of the earthly powers. You know, Paul cuts through this very quickly because it's like, oh, well, I'm a son and I was born a slave. He's like, no, 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 it doesn't matter. If you're in God's house, you're a slave. Whether you were born from his loins or not born of his loins, if you're in his house, you are a slave. And that's it. So be ready to serve the master of the house. And whoever you serve, that is whose house you are a citizen of. Verse 25 can be summed up very simply as a kind of preemptive strike against complaining and whining. Because what Matthew is saying very simply is that what's good enough for Jesus is good enough for you. If Jesus was mistreated, if Jesus was accused, if Jesus faced execution, why would you expect anything different? If you want something different, your fears are misplaced. Because if you want something other than the cross, that means you still fear the things that are passing away. Therefore, in verse 26, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Everything will be exposed for what it is. You'll recall, Richard, that when we were talking about the book of Daniel last week, we tried to explain what was conveyed in the homily at Daniel's funeral that scripture is written from the perspective of the end. When you view things from that perspective, nothing is hidden. You can see that the kingdoms are temporary. You can see that the ones who executed Jesus are temporary. You can see that what abides is the truth of God's teaching. And since that is what abides from generation to generation, that's the wagon to which you should hitch yourself. This is the call to end the excuses. Whatever justification you come up with, the real reasons, the real motivations are going to become clear. There's no way to avoid it. Today is the day 
for you to be honest. Whose house are you in? Enough of the excuses, enough of the explanations, enough of the wishy-washy talk, enough. You're either in the house or you're not in the house, and every action that you perform will make it clear whose house you're a member of. Don't try to come up with lip service that's going to show other people which house you're in. Because if you're using your lip service to show other people what house you're in, you're in the wrong house. You're not in God's house. You're not his slave. You're following Beelzebub in your own ego. It's that clear. It's going to be revealed. Every way that you have gone against God's will, against God's teaching, then it's time to go and make amends. Throw yourself at God's feet and say, I didn't follow your will. I still want to be a member of your household, but I've been making excuses. What else are you going to do? To the people that you've hurt, go and ask their forgiveness. For heaven's sake, our society is filled with people who do the wrong thing, make a justification because it helps their career, and destroy other people. They destroy them. They destroy people of other genders. They destroy people of other races. They destroy people of other socioeconomic classes because they won't follow God's teaching. Why do they continue to do it? Because they convince themselves that they're still a part of God's household. But who do you fear? If you're going to make excuses with him, do you actually fear him? No, you don't fear him. You fear what other people are going to think. And Jesus tried to put that to rest in chapters 5 and 6. Are you willing to do what it takes to follow God as your master and you as his slave, him as your teacher, and you as his servant? Go amend your ways. Go do something differently, but according to God's will. Verse 27 then becomes a test, because in verse 26, we are told that everything will be revealed and everything hidden will eventually be known. But now in verse 27, we are being challenged to behave as children of the kingdom who walk now with the knowledge of what will be revealed in the end and can therefore speak without fear. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. In other words, everything is not revealed. Everything is not known to all. But since you know from the wisdom of God that everything will be revealed and everything hidden will be uncovered and known, what's holding you back from speaking now? Why not announce it now? You have nothing to lose because you know the secret is out in the end anyways. Shout it from the housetops. This is the command given to the ones who are called the sent, the apostles. They are sent out to shout this news to give as many people as possible knowledge of the end so that they can realign their fears away from Caesar towards wisdom, and specifically in Matthew, the wisdom of God contained and handed down in his Torah in the New Testament. Jesus is sending out these disciples precisely because he is not the one to teach everyone. He's sending out disciples so that this message will continue out. He's saying, guys, I can talk to who I can talk to, but now it's up to you to teach the next generation. Don't be mealy-mouthed. Don't go halfway. If you're going to teach the teaching, teach it. Proclaim it. And don't just talk to a couple of friends. Proclaim it from the rooftops. Now, this is not saying go and annoy as many people as possible. 
because don't forget what he said. If someone's not interested in listening, move on. But it doesn't mean you don't have to teach. Teach. And if someone doesn't want to listen, don't annoy them. Keep going. Jesus is not doing this to annoy people. He teaches somebody and then moves. As soon as you're done listening to what Jesus has to say, shut the book and stop reading. If you don't like what Jesus is teaching, don't try to be his disciple or claim to be his disciple. But if you are, you must read it, you must dedicate your life to it, and you must proclaim it as this is your citizenship. This is your patrimony, as God, through his mercy, allows it to be. This is the only solution, because look, like I said, people want to pay lip service. People want to have power. People want to have money so that everyone can see. There are literally pastors of Christian churches who say, I need to have multiple jet planes so I can fly around so people know that through the gospel you get prosperity. What are they saying? People need to see. As soon as you say people need to see, you're falling Beelzebub. You're going against chapters 5 and 6. That's it. But there are literally people who claim to be teaching. They have no problem teaching from the housetop. Look at me. I have $5,000 suits and three airplanes. They have no problem shouting that from the rooftop. So shame on you. If you believe in the actual gospel that Jesus is teaching, you must, as a citizen of the kingdom, be ready to teach. Be ready to teach insofar as you're able. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. There's a couple of things I want to say about verse 28. The first is that we have to contextualize this teaching in the book of Genesis. And of course, Father Paul on the Tuesday show has been spending a lot of time going into detail on the terminology of Genesis. And when we talk about in Greek, the psyche, it's the breath that God controls. Caesar can run a sword through you, but he cannot breathe life into you. So try not to think of this word soul in terms of Hellenistic philosophy, the ghost and the machine. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's saying ultimately only God, his Father, has the power to breathe life into you. Jesus, as the expression of his teaching, is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. So you should fear the one who controls the beginning and the end, who has total control. And you should fear the one who has the power to judge everyone, including Caesar. That's the key of the second part of the phrase, which talks about this place, which is called Gehenna in Greek, or Gehenna. It's a place where they threw the trash. It's a metaphor for God's power to bring all civilizations under his aegis, which frankly, is what happens over the course of history. You need only read The Time Machine by H.G. Wells or watch the film that so beautifully depicts how one small spot in London changes over the course of millennia. Structures rise and fall and rise and fall, and in the end, it's all gone. Understanding and submitting to that thing which is eternal is the key here. Those th things, those powers that can destroy the body, they cannot affect the soul. And this, in turn, is given life by the Spirit of God. And that's what is supposed to be functioning at all times, the Spirit of God. Because remember, this verse we're reading now harkens back to a previous passage, which was saying that whether you're 
doing well or whether you're under trial by the powers, your job is to continue to teach. Your will and your life has to be pointed completely towards teaching because it is this teaching that animates you. Even when you die, it's going to animate the next generation. It's going to keep this kingdom alive, whether you're alive in body or not. The teaching of these kingdoms of the world that rise and fall in the time machine, what teaching lasts from them? A little scrap here, a little scrap there. But this teaching of the gospel that those kingdoms, all those kingdoms that rise and fall are nothing in the end. You know, if they're very powerful, there's a few stones left above ground. That's what's left of those civilizations. Look, what's interesting about the example we brought from science fiction, H.G. Wells' story of the time machine, is that all of the books turn to dust in that story. But I think the proposition of scripture is something more, because the wisdom of the text which thankfully is encoded in the scroll and handed down to us. This is the most important technology in the history of civilization, the ability to record speech with inscriptions on a page. This wisdom that's handed down to us is not philosophical. Scripture is not a philosophical text. It is, and you can't call it a scientific text in the modern sense because the discipline of science is a very specific thing. However, those who wrote this body of literature were in a school, a discipline that paid very close attention to the way things work. In that sense, scripture is a kind of behavioral psychology. It looks at how life works. It looks at phenomena. It looks at human behaviors. And it doesn't just describe these behaviors, but it proposes based on knowledge alternative behaviors that serve the common good and safeguard human life, and safeguard all life, all of creation, to put it in biblical terms. The truth of this wisdom is true whether or not you have a copy of the Bible. And in this sense, this wisdom endures forever. Because if you slap someone on the face, they're going to slap you back whether you've read the gospel or not. The truth endures, the truth of the teaching. And that's, you know, what Paul alludes to when he talks about those who have not read Scripture, who have the law written on their heart. They have common sense. They've come to understand that if you're cruel to others, you can't be surprised when you experience cruelty. So this wisdom endures even if all the libraries are burned to the ground, but it's incumbent upon those of us who have received it to heed this commandment given to these characters in the story that we are sent out to ensure that the teaching is shouted from the housetops so that as many people as possible can benefit from its wisdom. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. This reminds me, Richard, of the passage about Solomon and the lilies of the field that came as part of the Sermon on the Mount, that beautiful, beautiful mashal about fear. Matthew is coming back to that theme again here in chapter 10. But in verse 29, it's a reminder once again that it is God who has the power to give life, God who has the power to take life, God who holds the fate of the human race in the palm of his hand. It's powerful. Remember, 
that the ancient biblical school presented God as the mightiest king above all other kings to realign the fears of those who are oppressed. And the same thing is happening here under the Roman Empire in the Gospel of Matthew. It underscores that there's nothing beyond the Lord's notice. There's nothing that can continue to be hidden. If God is keeping track of every single sparrow, how about every single act of cruelty you perform to other people with the best of intentions, or you're trying to do the right thing? God is keeping track. If you want to be in this house, then you're expected to live by its rules. Don't fool yourself. God is keeping track. Do you want to fear the one who is keeping track or not? That's the question. Oh, he doesn't really care. Oh, he doesn't know. Whatever. This is how the fools speak in Scripture. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So not only does God control life and death, not only does he have authority over Caesar, over Pharaoh, over the Roman Republic, but he has each hair on your head numbered. So what is it you're going to do? This is a beautiful, beautiful admonition to those who try to control everything and solve everything. You have no control. God has control. And in verse 30, it's being pushed to the extreme. It's an exaggeration. Because if you really believe that the scriptural God is counting the hairs on your head, then you've misunderstood everything. Verse 30, in a way, reflects the intent of the Torah and all of the regulations of the Torah, which were given to show us that we can't count every hair on the head. We can't truly keep kosher. And that is meant to humble us. And now the scriptural God who gave us that law to make fun of us and to put us in our place is reminding us that unlike those who fall short of his instruction, he can keep track of every last hair on your head. You said it all there. He is keeping track of everything and he has the power to know whatever he needs to know. Again, don't try to say that you're a member of God's household when your actions show that you're following Beelzebul. He knows how many hairs are on your head, for heaven's sake, let alone whose household you're a member of. I mean, come on. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. And here in verse 31, you have again a hearkening back, a recalling of the summation of the Sermon on the Mount, that you are not perfect. Right? You can't count all the hairs on your head. You fall short, even though you are called to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. At the same time, you are given an opportunity because the one who is perfect has welcomed you into his household. He's given you an assignment. You're a slave in his household, as we heard just a few verses ago. And the assignment is to shout his news from the housetops. And if you trust him, you have nothing to fear because you're protected. You're in his domain, and he values you even more than the sparrows. And a God who numbers the hairs on your head definitely values the sparrows. He values all of creation and all life. And in that sphere, he's telling you that he values you. So why are you afraid of Caesar? Why are you afraid of being put out of the synagogue? Why are you afraid of poverty or insecurity? Put your trust in God, and you will fulfill your function in his household. Any human boss, any human father, any human 
teacher, any human president or king, is always, at least partially, looking out for themselves. They're always going to be selfish. If you're putting your hope in these people, you're bound to be let down because they don't care. They care about themselves. This is who we're surrounded by. Just like we were saying at the very beginning of this episode, Father, everyone in America does not want to be bound. They want to take care of themselves. God alone, because he has no need for any one of us any more than we have a need for this or that sparrow, he doesn't need us. But this is good news for us because he doesn't use us. <laughs> he has no reason to use us because he doesn't get anything from us. He doesn't need us. So when we remember that everything we do is going to be revealed, when we know that God is keeping track of all the sparrows and the hairs of our head as needed, then we know that we are free from tyranny because if anything happens to us from the human rulers that we would perceive as negative, we know that God is keeping track. We know that God is overseeing the entire thing. So we understand through scriptural eyes that this is for our own education or for the education of those around us. Any action that we perform, if we are members of the kingdom, if we are members of the Lord's household, can be a furtherance and must be a furtherance of his teaching. I want to give a word of encouragement to our listeners, especially those of you living in the United States. All of us are experiencing a kind of instability, and very often it feels like things are completely out of control. But according to the Gospel of Matthew, that's an illusion, and that's really important. So long as the God of the book of Matthew, the scriptural God, is enthroned in the heavens, even things that seem out of control are in the palm of his hand. He is the master. And understanding this is the key to weathering the storm, because when you understand that he sits on his throne and the earth is his footstool, then you trust the law of his kingdom. It has hegemony in your life, and in the midst of the apparent chaos, you walk with certainty and you speak with confidence according to his commandment, his law. That is the key to life. Because remember, Scripture was addressed to those who were oppressed, those who were under the boot of tyranny, in order to create life for them under the nose of their oppressor, to create freedom for them and hope, despite the apparent hopelessness of their situation. And this confidence that comes from fearing the Lord and trusting that he has the hair on every head counted, this confidence is the key to the continuation of life. So please take the Gospel of Matthew seriously and make every effort to internalize its teaching. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.